This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome, everybody. This is Leadership in Action. You know that, Sirius XM's business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I am Mike Usim, director of the Center for Leadership and Change, faculty director for the McNulty Center, and I'm with my co-host and good friend and colleague, Ann Greenhall, who is the deputy director of the McNulty Leadership Program. Ann, how are you doing? I'm great, Mike, and it's great to be here tonight with you. How are you? Uh, I am doing really well, especially knowing that we have a really interesting uh, guest coming on in just a minute. I'm going to introduce him in about that much time. But as is our custom, uh, offer up something about your week, your day, your last hour that's got kind of leadership implicit in it. So what what stands out? Oh, boy. Well, Mike, uh, today and tomorrow, as you know, at the University of Pennsylvania for the undergraduates, is fall break. And fall break, although it's only supposed to be two days, Thursday and Friday, sometimes the undergrads like to get a little jump start on fall break. So I actually have, uh, I, you know, I do adore the students, but I have had a wonderful time all day in the office, just doing a little (laughs) bit of management by walking around. Recharging the battery and a few more things. Yep. Checking on people, seeing how things are doing. And I find that that can be really helpful in just doing a little impromptu troubleshooting. That's excellent. We don't go quite as far as the famous Bill Gates used to do, and he may still do, of taking an annual retreat in a cabin. I think there was no Internet, no no telephone, but he'd show up with a bunch of books and recharge uh, his battery. So, yeah, so uh, I was inside. Where were you? Well, I'll just quickly uh, offer up my kind of standout moment for my day. We have an advanced management program here. We've talked about it on the show before. Mm -hmm. Uh, 39 relatively senior people who come for five weeks. Today we had them on the local river here, a very famous uh, rowing venue. And uh, they got into eight-person shells, learned how to row, and they learned how to work as a high-performing team. Oh, great. And we, no one capsized. Nobody capsized, <laughs> uh, as far as I know. And um, it's just a, why do we do that? Well, we talk about high-performing teams. You talk about them. Mm-hmm. I talk about them in my classes. And nothing like getting out there and putting those ideas to work. So that was the day. That's great. A stretch experience for all of them, I'm uh, sure. It was definitely a stretch. So anyway... <laughs> Well, good to catch up. Uh, I want to be- bring in our guest, uh, Bob Greifeld. Uh, Bob, I think you are on the line. I am on the line. I'm uh, glad to be here. Uh, Bob, it's great to have you here. I'm going to say a couple words about you, and then we're going to plunge right into a discussion. Uh, Bob has a new book out. Let me begin with that called Market Mover. And then listen uh, to the subtitle, Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ. Um, And that's a way of my saying that Bob was the uh, chair of the board there in an extremely tumultuous period as uh, trading and markets were evolving. Uh, A couple scandals came along that uh, uh, (laughs) brought everybody uh, into trying to solve the aftermath of the scandals, including what happened 
back in 0809 with the failure of Lehman, the uh, um, Madoff uh, problems. Anyway, uh, Bob, you've seen it all. You've been there. <laughs> you were responsible for solving many problems. So great to have you here. And let me begin maybe with an obvious question. Uh, your book, Mark a Mover, um, I found extremely interesting. Lessons for leadership at, at the end of every chapter. We're kind of in that business. What can we learn from an experience that other people will benefit from? So if you were to pick out one or two of your, for you, most important lessons of what you learned being at NASDAQ for that long stretch that other people would benefit learning about, what would you single out? Maybe just even one to get us going here. Yeah, let's start with one. So I, uh, in very early days with NASDAQ, uh, ordered, I think, a 1,000 small buses, and I had them in NASDAQ blue. (laughs) And uh, my point was that we have to have the right people on the bus. <laughs> and I was a believer that the strategy, while important, is secondary uh, to the athletes, the teammates you have on the bus. In that I know that the world never develops the way you think it uh, should or you expect it should. And so you could build a team that's great for a particular direction of the bus, but then it will, guaranteed, have to change direction, do course corrections all the time. And you have to have the team in place that can adopt to that kind of reality. And I I wanted people to know that we had to be dynamic uh, in many ways, and the team had to be there. And then part and parcel of that, uh, I knew that uh, the team engagement was a fundamental because you could have somebody doing a job in a functionary way, which is a fundamentally different outcome than an individual doing that in an engaged and, and passionate way. Bob, that's really interesting. Let me ask a quick follow-up before Ann jumps in here to and be part of the conversation, too. I find in talking with people like you and others who uh, are responsible for things happening, whether it's an enterprise, a startup, a stock exchange, a medical center, a university for that matter, that the immediate follow-up question they often have is, well, how do I make certain I have the right people on the bus? So if there's a killer question in an interview or as you look at somebody maybe you inherited when you came into NASDAQ back there in 03, what would you single out as your best way to answer the question, do I have the right people on the bus? All right. So I'll probably answer a little bit differently than you think. So one is I think your estimate of who is the right person uh, in the abstract uh, is too random of an outcome with respect to whether you'd be right or wrong. So I had a general guidepost that I'd like to promote 80% uh, from within and 20% external hires. And the 80% within meant that they were essentially interviewing for you know, months and years where we saw how they were given a task and how they responded to it. And you know, we could weigh, measure, and count that and judge some of the qualitative uh, performance in, in addition to the quantitative. That gave me great confidence at that person. So 
it wasn't that I had to guess at what that person would do. I knew that past performance was a great predictor of future performance. So that's what we would mm-hmm. uh, we would do to make sure the right people on the bus. Now, you also want to guard against your culture becoming too insular. So to say, yes, we're going to promote 100% from within uh, is also, I think, wrong because you have to have the culture evolve and new ways of thinking come into it. That's why I say the uh, the 80-20 rule. And that was in full recognition that your hit rate on the 20% was going to be lower, right? You had a higher uh, chance of getting it wrong uh, with those folks mm-hmm. than you did from the 80% you hired from within. Interesting. Yeah. And Bob, jump in. Bob, it's a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. Um, I, I'd i like to know, was there a particular moment, something that happened that uh, gave you this insight that this is how you you need to run the organization by making sure that everyone is the you know the right people are on the bus. Yeah, you know I think like everything it evolves over uh, time. Uh, but uh, I'll step back. So you know one of the realizations I came to is that if you have a better mousetrap right, and fundamentally have a innovative product, then you can be sloppy from a management point of view in many, many ways, hmm. right? Uh, but you have to realize that if you have the better mousetrap today, you will not have that tomorrow because you're right. in a competitive dynamic world, and you need to build the organization for that time when you're competing Mousetrap to mousetrap, apples to apples, right? Mm-hmm. There's always product mm-hmm. differentiation, of course, and segmentation, but fundamentally, you're in the same uh, world. Then you have to have the engaged employees, those employees that come to work every day uh, with, with, with passion. So, uh, yeah, I've spent periods of my time just being trying to be the pure innovator mm-hmm. where you can say, okay, if this comes to market, they're going to beat a path to my door. But it always gets back to, you know, you're going to have X amount of market share to fight to it. And then at that stage, then the people matter so much. Mm, Very good. So, and uh, if I could just press a little bit, because it's always so difficult to actually do these things. I appreciate your 80-20 formula of 80% from within and 20% from without. When hiring from without, how uh, what sorts of structures or um, strategies did you have in place to help guard against bringing in people who were, you know, like me, like the people who were doing the hiring? Uh, so let me say this. That is the single biggest thing you see happen time and time again. So we're smart to ask that question. Uh, it is truly remarkable how people come up with other people that to, to my eyes, I always reminded me of, you know, a different right. version of themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we didn't have anything. So we were aware of the problem. We talked and joked about it. Uh, but we didn't have any great uh, way of approaching it except for having any important hire was really a team hire. Oh, good. If you follow what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, and that you'd have the diversity of thought uh, in terms of who was doing uh, you know, in, in the hiring, and then we we talk about it. So we did not get into, you know, the psychological testing and things along that, mm-hmm. but, you know, the team concepts seem to work quite well. 
Very good. And maybe if I just slip in one more and then hand back to hand back to Mike. Um, so my assumption, but I want to check that assumption, is that the promoting from within did a couple things. You had from the from one point of view, you had a chance to see people over time, and they were they were tested. But did it also um, build a more um, you know, positive climate and culture in the organization because people felt that they could go up from within and that they didn't have to go out. Completely. I mean, I, you cannot overstate, I think, how important that is uh, to a culture. Uh, and it was fundamental to our success. And when you looked at the management team, they had all been there, you know, uh, for a long period of time, saw that as, you know, their home, and obviously act as engaged employees that I thought was critical. So I don't know how companies can really do it any other way, but obviously people do. Yeah, but there's a real churn, and uh, it may come yeah. off as more transactional rather than transformational for both for both parties. Mike, how about back yeah. to you? Yeah, uh, Bob, I'm going to just take a minute to remind our listeners that they are tuned into Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Usain, here with my friend and colleague, Ann Greenhall, and we're talking with Robert Greifeld, the chair of now Virtu Financial, and we're talking about his new book, Market Mover Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ. And, Bob, I'd like to get uh, um, uh, people to call in if they'd like to engage uh, with you. The number here is 844-942-7866. And just to um, move this along in a, um, as an informed um, discussion as we can make it, could you give us uh, just a primer on NASDAQ as you left it, uh, the volume of trades, your merger with the European operation, uh, and where you see, just to add to that, the exchanges all over the world going, including NASDAQ, in the next four or five years? Okay, that's, uh, that's a, uh, a good question that can be answered for a long period of time. So I'll try <laughs> to uh, uh, condense it down. So let me start with what you consider the traditional exchange uh, business, and that is if you're a in the marketplace and you want to know what Apple is buying, you know, buying or selling for, you know, we would take in the buying and selling interest on a global basis, consolidated and present it in ranked order on a screen or on a data feed, you know, for the world to see. And uh, that data was actionable in that the vast majority and really all our customers came in electronically through uh, what would be known as an API to interact with the market. And then we would process that transaction and send it back to them. So if you're with your E-Trade or Schwab account uh, and you're on their front end, you hit buy or sell. Uh, one, you see the price and you hit buy or sell. That information then flows to NASDAQ. Hmm. We then match the uh, trade with the counter side. If you buy, we'll match it with somebody trying to sell. Do the execution. Send it what's known as a tape, which is to broadcast it out to the world and send you your personalized execution mm -hmm. back. So from a business point of view, we got paid for transactions in the marketplace, whether the stock was going up or down, and we got paid for the market data feeds that we developed as a result of the bid offers that we were displaying and the last sales of trades that uh, happened. 
So that was, you know, something analogous to a traditional exchange business uh, with one other factor is that we'd have what we call the listing business. So we would solicit Microsoft to list on our, our market or, or Lyft or Google, and they would pay us an annual listing fee, and then we would be the regulator making sure that they stayed in line with our, our listing requirements. Uh, so when I got to NASDAQ, that was essentially the business listings, uh, the transactions, the data, and then we had one mm-hmm. other business uh, called the NASDAQ 100. We developed the NASDAQ 100 index and then built ETF products on top of that. And that has obviously proved to be hugely successful over the years. And so we were a single equity exchange and uh, we were facing a lot of competition. So we had to get our house in order. And when we talk about culture, when I came to NASDAQ in 2003, it was still technically uh, part of the NASD, the regulator. So the employees there had self-selected to work for a regulator or a quasi-regulator regulatory type body, and they didn't know how to compete in the world. And certainly that was one of my main missions coming in to change you know, the culture and, the, and then make sure we had the people in place who wanted to compete. Uh, uh, after we solidified our place in U.S. equities, we started a, a long march uh, of diversification. And I'd say that you always want to diversify from a position of strength, never to move away from a problem that you had. So I didn't start that uh, until after we were in a very strong position in our traditional equities business. And I knew that we wanted to then diversify across asset classes and geographies. So the closest asset class was the options marketplace, single listed, uh, listed options. So we did a de novo development. We call it NASDAQ Options Marketplace. And then in time, we bought the Philadelphia Exchange down in your neck of the woods, which mm-hmm. really was a options marketplace. And then we bought ISC. So we had, you know, 40-something percent market share in a business we knew nothing about prior to that. <laughs> and then we wanted to go, as I said, geographically diverse. Europe was the natural place for us to go and that the rule set was, you know, similar to uh, what we had in, in the States, and we could understand it. And we made two unsuccessful forays to try to buy the London Stock Exchange, which is in the book, and that was uh, certainly in the second one, just the question of what is the right price for an asset, which is mm-hmm. always a topic of debate. And then uh, we successfully completed the acquisition of the Nordic exchanges uh, there. So. The Nordic exchanges gave us geography diversification. In addition to that, we picked up our first derivatives franchise, uh, not in equity options, but really uh, in a variety of what we call either interest rate products and or uh, credit products. And the Nordics also had a clearinghouse. So that was a big step for us because I live with the mantra that – you know, you have a couple ways to look at the risk of acquisitions. You always hear about acquisitions not working, but they generally do work. But the risk profile goes up the further you get from headquarters, right? A simple physical fact mm-hmm. like that matters. Uh, the larger the acquisition is relative to your size, uh, and then how far from your business model are you going? So I had three tripwires, right? They were in Stockholm. Uh, they actually had more people than we had, and the derivatives in the clearing market uh, was something that we didn't do today. You know, the equity and the 
uh, index products we knew uh, quite well there. Uh, so we knew uh, we'd have some interesting times with that, and, and we did, but we persevered, and I basically kept the same playbook. When I first came to NASDAQ, I knew there was going to be a lot of uh, supposedly internal debate about what we were going to be and what was the culture going to be. And then after I had fired three people in the first 45 minutes and then had a town <laughs> hall and said, this is what we're going to be, all those discussions stopped. Right. And so, okay. If you, and I said very clearly that, you know, we're going to be this way. We're going to be a meritocracy, the way measure and count everything. It's going to be performance based culture, not for everybody. Uh, and so if you don't think this is right for you, then you should then, you know, leave. And, you know, it's not a value judgment. And I did the same speech in Stockholm, you know, essentially. Uh, and, and it worked. And a lot of people did self-select to leave. And, you know, we had back in the early NASDAQ days, a bunch of folks went to work for the NAC, which is, you know, where they wanted to be, which is not what we're going to be. And, you know, I basically went in Stockholm, I said, okay, we have, uh, you know, 900 people. There's in the Nordic region 15 million. I just need 900 people who want to think this way. And, and we're through, you know, what I said before. Uh, 900, we'll find it. And we found the Vikings. And I would say that we really did find the Vikings. And they, you know, for all the things I heard about how the cultures are going to be different, those folks we had there were more, more hardcore in terms of just wanting to perform uh, than many of our American folks. So, you know, that worked out well. And I take credit for not, you know, at times you want a, you know, collegial consensus-driven approach, and other times you don't. And, uh, you know, it worked well for us. On the first case, we didn't have the time, right? We were losing money every day. And whether I wanted to do the collegial approach, we just didn't have the time. We're losing market share every day. We didn't have any technology to compete with the upstart ECN, so uh, every minute counted. And, you know, in the book I talk about, I did keep waking up at night saying, God, I got here too late. So that was there. You know, with the Stockholm acquisition, you know, we could have taken a different approach, but I just didn't want to. And, uh, you know, the Swedes in particular were capable of discussing a uh, something to death, and you know, I just didn't want to hear that. Bob, so I, I, I noticed, by the way, Go just ahead. to break in for a second here, that the first sentence in your book is, I'm six months too late. Referencing what you just said. Uh, we're going to take a station break in a couple minutes, but I want to get Ann in here with a question yeah. before we take a break in four minutes. Yeah, Bob, just a wonderful, wonderful response to uh, Mike's question. Mm. If I were to distill it a little bit, <laughs> would you say that... A, you know, with respect to your own style, let's call it your leadership style, since the show is leadership in action, was your opening style more directive, a little more top down? You said you you walked in and you fired three people within the first forty five minutes, and there was no deliberation. It's just this is this is how it's going to be. We're going to be a meritocracy. We're going to be performance based. And then, <laughs> once you thought you had people, you know, aligned, those who stayed, stayed, those who didn't want to participate, left, then was your style more collaborative and collegial, as you said? Uh, I think you're mostly right. So uh, I, I would agree with you, but I would say you had a couple other practicalities. Okay. So, uh, 
One is the organization got larger and more global, so it was basically impossible for me to run NASDAQ of 2010 like I ran NASDAQ of 2003. Right. It was just a massive organization there. So uh, that that was a driving factor. The second is obviously the management team was selected and grew up and was more and more capable and uh, was in uh, truly culture carriers. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the book, I talk about how I knew I just wasn't as essential as I was in the early days. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a certain respect, I made myself less and less valuable over time as the management team got more and more capable. Mm-hmm. Ah. Ah, and would you say mm-hmm. that might be the, the goal of, you know, of a really successful leader is to, you know, make yourself obsolete? Well, certainly I like the expression that you always want to hire somebody smarter than yourself. So in the fullness of time, then you're the dumbest person in the company, right? Right, right. So, so yeah, it it is a goal in in a way. And that, uh, you know, that gives you the opportunity to grow Right. So, you know, one of the early things I learned when I worked for Burroughs back in Hmm. 1979 to 80 is when a mainframe computer was at, you know, 65, 70, 75 percent utilization, it was time for an upgrade because you needed Hmm. always to have spare cycles for that uh, peak requirement. So I use that with respect to uh, management. The proper management team has to have spare cycles, has to have some white space because otherwise, you're not going to grow 10% a year right. when you're running all out every day taking care of the daily stuff there. So I always had that as an aspiration, but certainly the first five years, uh, you know, that wasn't realistic. But as we got mature uh, and institutionalized, that became more and more uh, the case. Mm, great. Thank you. Uh, you allowed a lot of um early stage and even middle stage technologies uh, to get going because they listed with you first. So uh, I'm going to come back to that issue, but um, just talking through, if you wouldn't mind, one of your bigger successes and one of your bigger setbacks, uh, not to make you relive either, but I think (laughs) our our listeners, we found, always value um, a moment, an experience, affirmative, sometimes uh, more difficult from which they can learn about their own leadership. So, Bob, over to you on that. So uh, the one setback is an easy one to pinpoint. The success point is is more difficult. So let me start with the failure. So it's very easy that the uh, Facebook IPO day was by far and away our, our biggest failure. And it was the one time where uh, we broke out of... Uh, you know, the business news community and got into the general news community hmm. and not so much in a positive way. So that that certainly represented mm-hmm. a fair degree of stress. And the issue you had is you had to deal, obviously, with conflicting masters, uh, one being let's have, you know, a you know, 15-minute news cycle and get answers and, and give explanations, and two, you know, it was a very thorny, difficult technical problem, and how do you get to the root cause and understand what was the problem and what can you do to uh, ensure that, you know, it doesn't happen again? I, uh, did you? <laughs> yeah, so here, I'll give you, I don't want to type too much of your time, but uh, 
So basically, you know, we were running this IPO cross, and it got into a loop uh, to simplify it. And the loop uh, was created by not the fact that we didn't have talented software engineers, but we had software engineers who really uh, tried to, I call it, refuel in flight when they actually could have just landed the plane and put the fuel in. And, you know, I thought it was actually part of a long arc of a story in that when I first came to NASDAQ, we had systems that got updated once a year and they got engineered so they were highly reliable. And NASDAQ was, you know, basically going out of business because competitors had uh, Unix systems that were quite uh, unreliable, unstable, and they would die and they'd just restart them and go on to life. And they would release new software every day or every week or every two weeks. And if it didn't work, they'd just roll it back and come up with the old software. Mm. And so that would be anathema to how NASDAQ thought of the world. And when I came there, I changed the culture quite dramatically so it was more akin to what our competitors and really our customers wanted, the ability to uh, respond to rapidly changing requirements. Now, the downside of that is that in that process, we basically, I used to say, venerated the the technical person, Hmm. the technical people. And what was interesting in doing the real postmortem at Facebook, you saw that the technical person put this really high bar that wasn't necessary in terms of how the system could work, where they really could have achieved what the users wanted with really just essentially batch code, which you know, somebody like you or I could probably uh, write. And so I thought they were entertaining each other. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, I said, you know, the easy thing for a CEO to do is to, you know, fire a bunch of people. Uh, and But I realized it was the culture that I had created. Hmm. And, you know, we had to evolve that culture. And I think there are probably some old NASDAQ people who said, you know, uh, that's not the way we did it. So we really had to come in an intelligent way, you know, you know, somewhat back to where we were in 03. Now, the customer dynamic was different then because, you know, it wasn't such a knife fight as it was in 03. But, you know, we had to put a new engineering discipline on it. And probably most importantly, I had to put technical expertise in the business unit so they could, in fact, stand up uh, to... Uh, you know, the pure IT organization say, no, I don't need this in the technical spec. You don't, I don't want you to do it. Where before the engineers had free reign uh, to do it. And as I said, they were developing overly sophisticated code that was not necessary uh, to solve the problem set. So we learned, and, you know, what was interesting is the people who were there on the old way of doing things, they in turn quit. So, you know, I might have fired one or two people, uh, but, you know, we said, okay, here's the new rules. Here's how we're going to do this thing. And, you know, here's how we release software. And, you know, you know the, that that group really did, didn't survive, but that was more because they just wouldn't go along with the new culture. Hmm. Bob, at the risk of uh, putting salt in the wound, how did that uh, challenge compare to the Bernie Madoff sca- scandal? Yeah, so the Bernie Madoff scandal we were not directly in, involved with. Uh, so that was between him and his investors. Now, NASDAQ, uh, you know, this is before my time, but I, I had known Bernie and Peter. And I, you know, we covered in the book, and there's certainly an interesting 
uh, set of people. Uh, and, you know, the publicity would say that uh, Bernie was the NASDAQ chairman, and that was just, you know, just dead wrong, incorrect. Okay. okay. Bernie was on a, he was on an advisory board, mm-hmm. and for a short period of time, he was the titular uh, chairman of the advisory board, but didn't have any power. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't do anything. It was just an advisory board for the users. But let's be clear, though, Bernie had a privileged place in NASDAQ because he was trading stocks or listed on the New York Stock Exchange through the NASDAQ system. Mm-hmm. So NASDAQ loved him for that. So he was like one of the first guys to say, okay, at and I'm going to trade in what was known as the third market and report the trades through uh, NASDAQ. So while he had no official role in NASDAQ, yeah. you know, he was definitely a person who could walk the halls. And, you know, that happened, you know, I guess in the 90s, really. Yeah. Uh, so for us, that was, you know, interesting. Uh, but, you know, not, no, we weren't directly involved with it. Yeah. There is something to optics, though, is, wouldn't you say? The yeah, optics of it? not in the... Mm. Not not in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, there was nobody uh, there. That that was more general, uh, you know, publication interest right. kind of thing. Right. But yeah. I mean, Facebook, I had a major issue within my community, the, right. you know, the trading community and the listing community. The Madoff thing was, you know, something that was more tabloid press kind of thing. Got it. Very good. So, Bob, we're going to uh, wrap this up in about five or six minutes. And then and I uh, wanted to ask you... Looking back on your past, way back, so we think um, we found out that you were um, an English major. Uh, You have a great interest in track and field. You might have been a runner, maybe the New York Marathon among what you do. But um, let me accumulate a couple more things. Uh, You were in financial technology, then you came in to run one of the great exchanges of the universe. And for a person who is, let's say, finishing up as an English major in college, mm-hmm. uh, they want to use that. They don't want to give that up. But they also want to take on opportunities for responsible roles in sometimes very significant organizations. With the benefit of hindsight, what advice would you have for them if they're sitting in the room with you and they say, give me my... Give me a feel for how to manage my future in light of your past. Okay. Uh, I'm giving some long answers here, so let me try to get this. This one can be a long answer, too. I'll try to make it <laughs> short. So, Because uh, I get some variation in this question. So, And I, I, the big mistake I see people make is they think of their career progression, their career ladder, and they think, I have to do this job to get there. And they take a job where they don't have the passion, right? And not that they're not doing a good job, but they're lacking uh, the passion. And to me, when you do that, you're wasting years in your life, right? And if you take a job that you really have the passion for, right, you will do well in that job. It will be noticed, and your career will advance, and you have not wasted a day of of your life. And so I kind of... I'd like to say to people, I never had a career path plan, uh, but I certainly could see the next step in terms of what I I wanted to do there. So I I think that's fundamental. You've got to do what you have passion for. And then I've got to make sure I qualify that by saying it's not that you're skipping around at work every day. And I had many 
bad days at jobs that I loved. And it's not that you wake up Monday morning and say, holy God, thank God the weekend's over. <laughs> uh, uh, that kind of thing. But, you know, so passion is an enduring uh, desire for it. So, you know, that that's, you know, absolutely uh, fundamental. Now, as an English major, I think it's important to counsel people to get some other training, right? So when I went for my NBA, the story I like to tell is I went at night, and so by the time I graduated, uh, I was already far enough along in my career where my compensation was, you know, three times what the average NBA person was getting. Uh, so I never interviewed with uh, the NBA degree. I never used it as a credential. But I use it uh, for the essence of education, right? Uh, the fact that I went through those courses allowed me, gave me the bedrock knowledge to learn through the rest of my career, you know, hard, hard stop. So I think that was important. Now, you don't have to do that for a traditional NBA program like I did. But the fact is that I got the accounting, I got the finance, I got the econ, uh, and uh, you know, w- was important. And also, my NBA concentration was in you know, computer science. So I got some great technology courses there that allowed me uh, uh, to learn uh, there. So you have to then get in that baseline knowledge. Uh, so as a strong component, uh, proponent of the liberal arts, I'm not uh, so naive to say that you don't have to have technical skills that go along with that. And obviously that technical bar increases uh every year and you know it's what i tell young people i tell uh my my kids i said the world is not going to get less technical right? <laughs> it's just not going to happen right so 10 years from now it's going to be more technical so you just got to make sure you're keeping up uh you know with that that's great great response bob and now how about the question mike asked about athletes when you opened up you said you need the right athletes to the right team so tell me a little bit about how uh, runners play into your into your life. <laughs> so you know, I I run the Philadelphia Marathon twice. Oh, great! Come, oh, awesome! Yes, awesome. I used to I used to come down for the Broad Street Ten Miler. That's <laughs> Another great awesome too. run. Yeah, yeah, at a net downhill at the end, which I love because <laughs> it's like you're better than better than you are that kind of thing. So I don't have a I don't have a need for running now, so I do more. Uh, biking, with, okay. which I say, uh, uh, you know, when I meet my maker, I'm going to complain about how we put the knees together because he could have done a better job. Could have done a better job. Just my two cents. Yeah. Uh, there, but you know, uh, you know, sometimes when times are tough, I say, you know, all right, we have to get into marathon mode here. Right. And by that I meant hmm. you're just trying to live to the next mile, right? So you're right. not sure if you're going to get there or not, but just live to the next mile. It doesn't happen too often. And what I say to people is the job is a marathon. Right. It's not a sprint. At times you will have to sprint, mm-hmm. right? No doubt about it, where you're burning the candle on both ends, but you can't do that forever. It's really a marathon. And a marathon knows that you got to plod through the thing to get it through. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen is uh, because you're hiring bright, motivated people, I've had more people burn out on me then not work hard enough, right? right? So you get into that situation. And it's the same thing, you know, involved with the elite track athletes. You know, their issue of the coaches, as you talk to them, is the athletes overtraining, right? right. Just wearing themselves out. 
It's the same thing with great employees, right? You've got to make sure that they're in for the long haul. I don't need a, a 90-day wonder, right? Yeah, I need sustained production over time. Uh, it's a marathon. I will ask you to sprint in times. Yes. Right? There's no doubt about it. People say, holy God, but you can't do that as a steady fare. And when my daughter would run, I say to her, you know, success is a long series of good to very good workouts. It's not about a couple of great workouts. Oh, that's and, great. You know, the same thing with work. You come to work every day. You have a, you pile up the good days on top of each other. You're going to get somewhere in life. <laughs> Bob, a very, a very good note to end on. We're going to let you run. We know you've got to head off. I just want to, first of all, thank you for yes, sure. Thank we've, you, Bob. We've loved the discussion, enjoyed uh, looking at your book. Uh, people know where to buy books these days. The usual booksellers, I'm sure it's on Amazon and everywhere else. If they would like to learn more about you and maybe some of your current projects and initiatives, what, what guidance would you have on that? On how to reach out to me in that regard? Yes. Uh, well, let me uh, you know make sure you have your email. They can just send me an email. Let okay. All right, great. All right. So, okay, so I'll make sure you... Okay, we will pass that along then for right. sure. So, uh, Robert, um, thank you. As Bob. author of Market Mover, we have learned a lot. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Right, thank you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. All right. So long. Take care. Okay. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.